Welcome to your first official day of medical school. Hi guys, I'm Sarah Halbert. And I'm Brian Elliott. And you're listening to MedStud Memoirs. Today we will be talking about multiple sclerosis, also called MS, which is an autoimmune disease in which the body attacks its own nervous system. But before we get started, our book recommendation for this week is Behave, The Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst by Robert Sapolsky. It's an educational but accessible piece on human and animal behaviors and the biological processes that drive them. You can check it out by clicking the link in the description, or you can listen to it for free. Just click our link to Audible in the description and get a free 30-day trial with your first download free. So like Sarah said, this week we're going to be talking about multiple sclerosis. The first official case description of this disease was written in 1838 by renowned French neurologist Jean-Martin Charcot. The same Charcot behind Charcot-Marie Tooth Disease, Charcot's Triad, Charcot Joints, and ALS. He was a busy guy. So he first described MS, but it wasn't until the late 1800s that MS was recognized as a specific disease. And to this day, we're still learning new things about MS. For example, certain drugs like rituximab can treat MS for reasons we don't really understand well. What is important to understand, at least from the perspective of a medical student, is that what MS is, how it presents, how it's diagnosed, and how it's treated— So that's what we will be covering in this episode. It's important to remember that while there are certain clinical features that appear in classical cases, the disease can be highly variable between patients, both in presentation and in pace of progression. There's a saying in medicine that classically means 20% of the time. So what is multiple sclerosis? MS is an autoimmune-mediated inflammatory demyelinating disease of the central nervous system. Say that five times fast. (laughs) Well, the basic way to conceptualize it is to think of the nervous system as a complex web of small wires sending information to the different parts of the body, with the brain as the central computer that is integrating and coordinating many of these signals. In MS, the body's immune system begins to attack the insulation of these wires, aka the myelin that insulates axons, damaging them and preventing these signals from effectively getting from place to place. If you remember from physiology, many neurons use what's called saltatory conduction along their axons, meaning that instead of ions crossing the membrane along the entire stretch of axon, they only need to cross at the areas between myelinated segments. These are called the nodes of Ranvier. This saves time and energy because the insulation provided by myelin allows the signal to travel to the next node without the signal dissipating. The insulated wiring analogy really is spot on. As far as myelin goes, there are two types. There are Schwann cells, which myelinate the axons in the peripheral nervous system. In the central nervous system, the brain and the spinal cord, oligodendrocytes are the cells that myelinate axons. The major difference between these two types, besides peripheral versus central, is that one oligodendrocyte myelinates many neurons, and one Schwann cell myelinates only one neuron. So why is this important in MS? Well, MS only hits oligodendrocytes, so the central nervous system— And this is so important to understand the signs and symptoms of the disease. Now let's talk briefly about what causes somebody's immune system to all of a sudden start attacking the body's own myelin. To be clear, it's not well understood, but there is a theory that is very important in understanding how we think about autoimmune disease like multiple sclerosis. The general theory is that people have a genetic predisposition to autoimmune diseases that may start attacking the body when the immune system is kickstarted. 
The genetic predisposition here probably comes from something called the major histocompatibility complex, or MHC. This is a gene that is involved in antigen presentation. It's kind of like a free sample table. Your cells chop up proteins and put them out as free samples for passing white blood cells to taste. If they recognize it as something that should be there, they move on. If they recognize it as something that shouldn't be there, they initiate the immune response. And that is the issue in MS. The body fails to recognize parts of myelin as something that should be there. Instead, they initiate the immune response when it really isn't necessary. So to dive a little deeper to the step one level, there are two types of MHC. MHC class one, which present antigens that are present inside the cell. These are found in all types of cells. And MHC class two, which samples surrounding material. And these are found in antigen presenting cells whose job it is to look for any foreign antigens. The genetic predisposition in MS has been linked to a specific subtype of MHC class 2, called the HLA-DR2 subtype. So if someone has this subtype, they have an increased chance of developing MS. So after some inciting event like a normal infection, the immune system may go haywire because of this subtype and get kicked into overdrive. T-cells start to attack myelin or commonly the potassium channels within myelin, and wreak havoc. Now, HLA-DR2 and autoimmunity against myelin potassium channels are definitely lower yield facts in this disease, but understanding theory involving MHC genetic predisposition followed by an inciting infection is very important because the same theory applies to other autoimmune diseases like type 1 diabetes, Addison's disease, and many more. Now that we've covered the immunology and pathogenesis of MS, what does it look like when these patients come into the office? Well, like we mentioned before, it can vary quite a bit from person to person. But there are a few characteristic patterns that we look for as clinicians to identify these cases. Often, these patients are women in their 20s or 30s. The first presentation typically looks like a clinically isolated syndrome, such as infection of the optic nerve, white matter tract symptoms, signs like numbness or weakness, or internuclear ophthalmoplegia, which might resemble a brainstem syndrome. Presentations due to cortical syndromes such as aphasia or visual field disturbances are possible, though much less common. This presentation may be either monofocal, consistent with a single lesion, or multifocal, consistent with more than one lesion. Now, numbness and weakness are pretty nonspecific. So let's talk about the ocular findings of multiple sclerosis like optic neuritis, and intranuclear ophthalmoplegia, which are classic presentations of MS. Optic neuritis is an itis that just means inflammation of the optic nerve. In MS, this is called the Marcus Gunn pupil, which is an afferent, so sensory, defect in the pupillary light reflex. In a normal pupillary light reflex, a doctor shines a pen light into one eye, and the shortened version is that the light travels back to a structure called the Eidinger westphal nucleus. This sends a signal to both eyes through cranial nerve 3 to constrict both pupils. If this process is messed up by an efferent defect, then one pupil won't constrict because the output signal to that pupil is messed up. If this process is messed up by an afferent defect, then neither pupil will respond because your brain never receives the light signal in the first place. And this is what happens in MS. Now, internuclear ophthalmoplegia is a different ocular finding. This is a dysfunction of conjugate lateral gaze which is essentially a fancy way of saying how your eyes look from side to side. First, you need to know that cranial nerve 6, also known as the abducens nerve, innervates the lateral rectus, allowing your eyes to 
abduct or look laterally, and cranial nerve 3, the ocular motor nerve, innervates the medial rectus, allowing your eyes to adduct, adduct, or look medially. So because when you look left, your abducens nerve is working on your left eye and your ocular motor nerve is working on your right eye, these two nerves need a way to communicate to ensure they work in sync, and that's called conjugate lateral gaze. So let's say that we're talking about the left eye. Then your left abducens nucleus sends one output signal to the left lateral rectus and another output signal through a structure called the medial longitudinal fasciculus, or MLF, on the right side. Stay with me. The MLF then travels to the right ocular motor nucleus, which sends a signal to the right medial rectus to ensure conjugate lateral gaze. The reason this is important is because MS commonly damages the MLF because it's a heavily myelinated structure. So if you have a young female patient and you're doing a neuro exam, you're going to tell them to follow your finger with their eyes, keeping their head still. And if during lateral gaze, one eye abducts normally and the other stays fixed on you, you have to consider MS. So let's back up for a second and talk about the progression of MS. Most patients with MS have what is referred to as relapsing remitting disease. A relapse, also called an attack or an exacerbation, is defined as the sudden onset of clinical dysfunction in the central nervous system in the absence of fever or infection. Specifically, the symptoms should be typical of an acute inflammatory demyelinating event. These usually reach a peak in days to several weeks, and they're followed by a remission during which the symptoms and signs somewhat resolve, though the degree of recovery varies. The minimum duration for a relapse has been arbitrarily established at 24 hours, though most relapses are much longer. Clinical symptoms of shorter duration are less likely to represent new lesion formation or the extension of a previous lesion. Relapses have a tendency to recur in the same location, so spinal cord, optic nerve, brainstem, but relapses can present with any of the typical clinical symptoms of MS, and there are no specific clinical features that can reliably distinguish the initial clinical attack from a relapse, other than history. Approximately 5-10% to 10% of adult patients have the primary progressive form of MS, which presents with gradual accumulation of disability from the onset without superimposed acute relapses. There is also secondary progressive MS, which begins as a relapsing remitting disease, but over time enters a stage of steady deterioration in function, unrelated to acute attacks. Now, sensory symptoms are the most common initial feature of MS, followed by weakness and visual disturbances, but the sensory features are present in almost every patient at some time during the clinical course of the disease. Patients commonly report numbness, tingling, pins and needles, tightness, coldness, or swelling of the limbs or trunk. Radicular pains can also present, uh, particularly in the low thoracic and abdominal regions. These are shooting pains in the distribution of one spinal nerve root. Another symptom suggestive of MS is an intense itching sensation, especially unilateral and in the cervical dermatomes. So there are no clinical findings unique to MS, but some are highly characteristic of the disease. Common symptoms include sensory symptoms in the limbs or one side of the face, visual loss, acute or subacute motor weakness, double vision, fatigue, gait disturbance and balance problems, vertigo, bladder problems, limb ataxia, and pain. A prominent triad in MS called Charcot's neurologic triad consists of scanning speech, which sounds like sep-ba-rating, words by syllables, intention tremor, and nystagmus. 
But even Charcot's triad isn't that specific or sensitive for MS. There is also a buzzword sign that may be seen in MS called Lermet sign. This occurs when a clinician flexes the neck of a patient with MS, which causes them to experience the feeling of an electrical shock down their spine or their limbs. So with all these nonspecific symptoms, how do we diagnose these patients? Well, a diagnosis has to be given based on integrating the patient's history with their symptoms and also findings on an MRI scan. There's this criteria called the McDonald criteria for the MRI diagnosis, which requires demonstration of the dissemination of CNS lesions in both space and time, which is what you would expect in a relapsing and remitting disease. It demyelates it in one place, remits, and then demyelinates in another place at a later point in time, and so on. So without getting too much into the radiology of it, first you would see lesions of demyelination on MRI, then if you wanted to determine if the lesions are currently active or old, you do an MRI with contrast. You inject somebody with a metal called gadolinium that can't cross the blood-brain barrier, and you do the MRI. And then you can see MS lesions that disrupt the blood-brain barrier. Another tool that can help in the diagnosis of MS is a lumbar puncture, or a spinal tap. You can examine the CSF fluid for signs of inflammation. In MS patients, we look for oligoclonal bands of immunoglobulin G antibodies. So what tools do we have available to help treat these patients? Unfortunately, there are no proven disease-modifying treatments for the progressive forms of MS. In the absence of effective disease-modifying therapy, multidisciplinary management for the common complications and symptoms is critical. Although there's no consensus, some experts reserve immune-modulating treatments for those with active disease on the basis of clinical or MRI measures. At the end of the day, there's really no specific best way to treat MS patients, a lot of it depends on the individual. But there is a major concept to understand that's the distinction between treating acute exacerbations and treating to prevent exacerbations and disease progression. So when someone has an MS flare and their disease begins to worsen, they can go into a hospital for treatment, maybe get an MRI with contrast that shows enhancing lesions, meaning they're active, and then get steroids to treat the acute flare. The main point here is that steroids won't modify their disease, but it will shorten the duration of this specific flare. If you think of it as a graph, relapsing remitting MS has ups and downs. The disease burden will go up during a flare and a plateau, and steroids can shorten the duration of that plateau, but it won't impact how many flares you get. That's what the goal of disease-modifying therapy is, and that's an important discussion here in the treatment of MS. So although there aren't specific first-line meds, we can go over some of the big drugs used in the treatment of MS. Interferon beta is one. It's basically a messenger that cells use to communicate with each other about infections. And interferon beta is the specific type that has been shown to slow the progression of MS. Then there are a bunch of monoclonal antibodies. Natalizumab is one. It's a monoclonal antibody that blocks alpha integrin 4 which is kind of like the adhesive some inflammatory cells use to stick to the walls of blood vessels. The big side effect here is that it has a risk of causing progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, which is a mouthful. It's a brain disease that causes dementia and ataxia in patients due to a virus called the JC virus. Another monoclonal antibody is ocrelizumab. This drug is brand new and it targets CD20, which is a surface receptor on B cells. And you may be saying, well, we said T-cells attack myelin, why would a B-cell drug work? Well, nobody knows. The last drug we'll mention for treatment of MS is glatiramir. This drug is actually a mimic of myelin basic protein. 
And although no one really knows how it works, it's kind of thought to act like a decoy. Okay, so what does this look like when it all actually comes together? A 27-year-old woman comes into your office complaining of new-onset diplopia when looking to the right. She tells you that one year ago she had an episode of blurred vision in her left eye that lasted for about three weeks. On neurologic exam, she had 20-50 vision in her left eye and 20-20 vision in her right eye. Her direct and consensual pupillary responses are normal when a light is flashed into her right eye. However, both pupils dilate when the light is moved quickly to the left eye. Extraocular muscle testing shows decreased adduction of the left eye on right gaze, which is associated with horizontal nystagmus in the right eye. The left eye abducts normally, and the right eye adducts normally on left gaze. So this patient has two lesions. Which of the following is one of them? A. The right Ettinger-Westfall nucleus. B. The right medial longitudinal fasciculus. C. The left optic nerve. Or D, the left ocular motor nerve? The answer is the left optic nerve. This patient has both optic neuritis and internuclear ophthalmoplegia, which means she has a left-sided optic nerve lesion and a left MLF lesion. All right, that's it for this week. Be sure to listen in next time when we talk to Dr. Patty Stevens about her experiences living with MS.